you would please turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to look at verses um, 11 through 20. As you're turning to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11 through 20, I'm going to turn there myself. I'm not going to tell you what page mine's on because you may have a different version of the Bible, right? And uh, there you go. My chairman deacon snuck in on me. Good to see you, brother. Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 11 through 20, but I'm going, to, I'm going to read verse 19 through 20 if you want to stand for the reading of God's word. Um, I'm going to read verse 19 through 20 and we'll have prayer. But when Samballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this evening. We pray that your word would not return to you void. It would bear the fruit that you intended to do. It would go forth and do what you intended to do. Father, just help me to keep with the clarity of the text, just pulling out the plain things from the main things. And we'll trust your spirit to not only fill us, uh, to be a clear witness, but fill us and empower us to understand, to be illuminated, and to apply to our own lives individually, to our homes, and to our local body. We ask these in, in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in the book of Nehemiah, and as we've been reading Nehemiah, we've, we've seen Nehemiah trust God, trust God to provide a passage, to provide a financier, to provide resources to get done what God had put on Nehemiah's heart. We've seen that. And, and to get to Jerusalem. And now he's at Jerusalem, and in our story today, Nehemiah arrives at Jerusalem, and he makes a survey of the task at hand. And the interesting thing about this story, when Nehemiah takes that survey of the task at hand, he doesn't tell everybody what he plans on doing. He takes the survey on his, on his own with a few friends. We're going to see him take a little survey here in the text tonight. And as he, and he, as he scans out the needs for repairs in Jerusalem so they can shore up the walls and rebuild the walls and and create Jerusalem where they could come and worship the one only true God. As he, as he scans out and surveys all those needs, as I said, he does it independently with no other person's knowledge. He's surveying this whole area. And after he takes that survey, he calculates the task. And then he gives, then he gives uh, the basic purpose as to why he even surveyed and why he is there. He didn't give them the full purpose why he was there. He gave them the basic purpose why Nehemiah even surveyed and why he's there in Jerusalem. One of the things a wise pastor once told me, he said, if you have a vision for a church or God's given you a task, and I believe it was Bruce and maybe another preacher, said, you don't want to reveal everything that God's called you to do there at that time. You reveal it as it needs to be revealed. And that's what Nehemiah does. He only tells them basically why he's there to rebuild. He doesn't go into the details. Uh, he doesn't go into all the, the whatnots. He hasn't even 
called this person to carry out that task and that task and that task. What he does is he says, look, we'll see in the text, he says, the reason I surveyed is I'm here to rebuild Jerusalem. So he gives them his basic purpose finally. And with that basic purpose of shoring up and building up Jerusalem, with that basic purpose, that's what unites the people when he gives that basic purpose. Sometimes I think, um, and, and I've made the mistake myself, is that sometimes all you need is a picture of the forest. You know, there's a forest. I don't need to point out every pine needle and every, every pine cone and every turtle. You just need to know about the forest. And that's what he's doing. He says, this is the big picture. I'm here to rebuild Jerusalem. And when he says that, after that survey, seeing what the needs are on his own, that unites the people. But as it unites the people, it ignites the critics. The basic purpose is to shore up and to build up. And as the critics come out of the woodwork to Nehemiah, we saw tonight it's Samballat, Tobiah, and then there's a third person. Because remember, when we were in it before, it was only Samballat and Tobiah that didn't like it. Well, in the meantime, they recruited another person named Geshen from the Arab. And when the, when the critiques or the critics um, say what they say and they reveal their allegiance, they, in what they say it reveals their allegiance that they're resisting what God wants Nehemiah to do. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to talk about three things. And this is Nehemiah begins the, the work at hand. He's going to begin the work at hand. He's already had someone finance everything. He's got an authority to be there from the king. He's got uh, the, the, the army that went with him. Remember, and he had the resources to not only rebuild Jerusalem, but to build his own house. And so now he's there with the task at hand. And so what we're going to see here in verse 11 through 15, as I said before, Nehemiah surveys, surveys the work at hand. In verse 11 through 15, he's, he's there and he's going to take a survey. Read verse 11 through 15 with me. So I came to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuge gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. He said, what are you, you getting that? He's taking a survey. What does he see? He, you remember when he heard the original testimony? He says, house God's people. The walls are broken down. The people are in exile. He gets a confirmation. Now he sees it for real. He's heard it. He believed his relatives what happened. That's why God even put that on his heart. And now that he's there, he sees the devastation. He sees the desolation. He sees the isolation of Israel all falling apart. The place where people would come and worship the one and only true God has just fallen apart. He's viewing it. He's surveying it. 
in that survey, Nehemiah, number one, took his time to move forward. Because it says he arrived there, and then he just waited three days. He didn't take his survey. He didn't just show up and say, okay, let's go do the survey. He waited three days. You know why he did that? I believe he was taking some careful planning in his head. He was saying, I need to take three days to, to even visualize how I'm going to head out on this survey. Because he knew Jerusalem, how it was all laid out. And he took a few days just to think about, how am I going to do this survey? Hmm, where should I start? Should I tell anybody what I'm doing? He took three days and he took his time to move forward. He not only took his time to move forward, but Nehemiah took his friends to move forward because it says he took three men with him. Now, he didn't tell them what they were doing. He just said, you three come with me. Three trusted friends. So he was careful in his planning. And as he went on that survey after three days, he took three friends with him, three trusted people that he knew he could, he could, he could trust and would support what he's probably fixed to say, this is what I'm doing. He took his time to move forward, carefully planning. He took his friends with him to move forward, these trusted, supportive people. And Nehemiah took his survey, survey. He took the survey so he could move forward. I mean, he knew he was there to rebuild Jerusalem, right? Because he'd already heard. But he wanted to see what the damage was, what it looks like. He, he may be sitting there saying, hmm, well, that wall... Let's just say like we were talking about this morning. That wall has some water pipes in it, and that one's got electrical in it. And, and all of a sudden, he, he knows who the electrician is. You see, he's, he's surveying to see who he can put over there to work on that wall, maybe over here with those skills, and maybe artwork. We put a lane over there and whatever. He, he's figuring it out as he takes this survey, how he's going to work out those details. And he took the survey so he could move forward because he had to have some basic observation of Jerusalem. He didn't just need the story that his relatives gave him. He believed it, but he had to see it for himself. Maybe he was from Missouri, right? The show me state. I doubt it. But Nehemiah surveys his work at hand. He took his time. He found support. And when he took the survey, he was just looking for basic observations because you you see as he describes from one gate to the other or one valley to the other he doesn't describe a whole bunch other than just there was one place where he couldn't even get underneath with his horse so he had to kind of leave his horse there or his ride and and walk in it himself but he saw gates burned walls down very basic things i mean right now nehemiah is only surveying what the outer perimeter he, he hadn't even said he walked up to the temple right and we know that was devastated too. He's just taking care of the basic needs, the surrounding. Because listen, if, if, if the walls of Jerusalem aren't built first, then how are they going to protect the work on the temple? How are they going to protect God's people within there that are going to worship God? He's, he's checking the, the boundaries. He's surveying the boundaries so they can shore them up. So we see in verse 11 through 15, Nehemiah surveys the work at hand carefully with trusted people and for simply the basics what is the basic need of the boundaries of the walls of Jerusalem then in verse 16 through 18 Nehemiah unfolds unfolds the work of hand look at verse 16 through 18 
and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or others who did the work. In other words, who's going to be doing this work in the future? I haven't told them. I haven't told them anything. Then I said to them, that was after this survey, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste or desolate, and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem. See that basic vision? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which has been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So he told them about the king financed it, the king gave you permission, all that stuff. God gave him favor, right? And he says, so they replied, so they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to do this good work. Do you see what Nehemiah is doing? Nehemiah has trusted God to leave a pagan king, and he didn't even know it, but the king financed it all. He's there under that king's authority, but ultimately by what? By God's favor, because God moved. He said God moved that man's heart, and now he's there, and he surveys this land, and then he begins to unfold on the people what he's there for. Nehemiah held back his full vision. He wants to restore all of Israel, but he held back his full vision, but instead he shared freely his basic vision. We've got to shore up the walls. We've got to rebuild the walls that protect God's people, that protect God's place of worship. Nehemiah held back that full vision, but yet he freely shared the basic vision, and therefore in that basic vision, Nehemiah led encouragedly through his heavenly vision because he says, listen, as I'm telling you what the basic vision is, I want to rebuild the walls. He says, I'm going to tell you how I got here. I got here by the will of a pagan king who financed it all to get me here. And that testimony surprised the people. And what did they say? It united them. They said, well, let's rebuild. If God is showing favor to you, he'll show favor to us. He unfolds the work at hand. He surveys the work at hand. Then in verse 19 and 20, Nehemiah defends, defends the work at hand. Look at verse 19 through 20. But when Samballot the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, that was the third person that was brought in between chapter 1, Two over there around verse 10 where it says Samballot and, and Tobiah didn't like it. It disturbed them. Well, all of a sudden it says Geshem the Arab heard of it. They laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself were prosperous. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. As Nehemiah surveys the land, he does it privately. 
He does it independently. He does it purposefully. He does it methodically for a reason so that he can see the damage himself. As he sees the damage himself, he doesn't lose heart. What he does is he comes back to people and say, hey, I just went out and looked around here, and I want to tell you why I'm here. I'm here to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Are you with me, he says? Because he says, look, God brought me here through a pagan king who's financed it all. And the people said, heck yeah. We're on with that. Let's rebuild. Let's put our hands to a good work. And right in the midst of all that unity, that glory to God, in the midst of that visionary thinking, that trusting God thinking, three men show up, Samballot, Tobiah, and Geshen. And the first thing they do is they think it's real funny what Nehemiah thinks he's about to do. It says they poke fun at him. And as they poke fun at him, it says there that as they, as they made fun of him, they said, what's this thing you're fixing to do? do you, does the king know you're doing this? Do you see the accusation? Do you, does the king know you're doing this? Like they're going to get him in trouble with the king. Like you, you, know, you know you're supposed to be back there, cupbearer. The false accusations, the, 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 the things that are thrown at Nehemiah that don't stick. Nehemiah faces his critics and their warped humor. They think it's funny that the walls are torn down in Jerusalem and Nehemiah just has a vision from God and he has united God's people to rebuild the walls and they think it's pretty funny. So he faces the warped humor of these three men and he hears his critics' warped logic. Who do you think you are? Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? They're tore down. Does the king know you're doing this? You see their warped logic? Had they been listening to Nehemiah, there in verse 16, and excuse me, 18, they would have heard that Nehemiah said, hey, this is how God gave me favor. He, he moved in the king's heart to finance it all. But they didn't care about the facts, did they? He faced their humor, their warped humor. He heard their warped logic. And by the way, their logic was lies because they said, they were basically saying, the king doesn't know you're doing this, does he? You're going to get in trouble. He saw their warped humor. He faced their warped logic. But yet, Nehemiah addressed the critics' warped resistance to what God was doing. He basically told them, look, you can laugh all you want to. You can make all the accusations you want to that I don't belong here, but the king sent me here. He said, well, I'm going to tell you something. You're either with God or you're against God. And the way you're talking right now, you're not even worthy to be part of this work. That's what Nehemiah said. Because he said there, what did he say? So I answered them and said, The God of heaven himself were prosperous. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage. In other words, you have no right, no memorial. In other words, you have no part of this situation. You're just here to be a critic. You're just here to cause discouragement. Nehemiah surveys the work. He looks at the basic needs. Then he unfolds the basic work and says, we need to rebuild. And God sent me here, and that's just how he sent me here. And the people said, let's, let's rebuild. But in the midst of all that, there were critics. 
And when he faced his critics, he faced them face to face and told them, this is what God's doing. He's going to do it, not me. So if you want to resist God, go ahead. But otherwise, you're not worthy to be part of this, even this conversation. Nehemiah begins the work at Ham by his survey with his brothers and in spite of his critics. Nehemiah is just a simple man. Nehemiah was nothing more than a cupbearer to a pagan king uh, being in captivity after God was ultimately trying to teach Jerusalem a lesson. You know, you need to stop worshiping other gods, and that's what happened. And they were scattered. But God puts in Nehemiah's heart to come and build. And the first thing he knows they need to build is the walls, the surrounding walls that protects the place where God's people are going to worship. And as he surveys, as he unfolds the basic idea, it unites the people, but it ignites the critics. As a believer, what do we learn from this? Well, as a believer, and this, by the way, this is the invitation. If you want an invitation, this is the invitation to the believer, and I'm going to give an invitation to the non-believer, and I'm going to tell you that's why, why I structure it this way. Because when I'm preaching, I'm only two, talking to two kinds of people. You're either saved or you're lost. You're either goat or sheep, right? And, and by the way, I, I think I told you when I first came here, I don't give tear-jerking invitations. I don't give a sawdust trail call. I just give you an appeal as a believer how to apply the text and give you an appeal as a non-believer how to apply the text. I told you that up front. And that's just the way I am. I've seen too many people abuse the invitation over the years. And it sickens my heart as a pastor. But as a believer, what would be your challenge? What would be your invitation? Well, we also have a task or maybe many tasks from God here at Calvary Baptist. We will carefully plan like he did for three days. He just planned on how he was going to survey. We will carefully plan how we approach these tasks before we even tackle those tasks. We're going to plan how we tackle those tasks. We're not just going to do a laundry list and knock it out because haste makes waste, Benjamin Franklin said. We're going to have a list, and then we're going to figure out how we're going to approach it. How would we approach it? Who would we approach? Prayerfully. We will carefully plan how we approach each task before we ever tackle the task. And we will build trusted leadership, trusted processes as we survey each needed task as it comes we can't handle it all at once but as they come as they get on a priority list we'll knock them out one at a time we will focus on the church's basic needs we will focus on our church's basic function and we will focus on our church's basic purpose if you were here on a Wednesday night your greatest purpose to the preeminent one, God himself, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is our greatest purpose as a believer, to glorify God. Now, that may be through evangelism. That may be through benevolence. That may be through a lot of things, right? But our purpose, it said, whatever we do, we do to the glory of God. So as I told you that, which not, it doesn't matter if, you're, if I'm driving back home on 412, 
that I'm driving for the glory of God. And if I'm going 85 miles an hour, God's not getting very much glory, is he? Especially if I get pulled over, I say, oh, I'm sorry, officer. I mean, it's just not a good witness. If we're not paying our bills, what does that tell that person about God? So everything we do, we do for the glory of God because that is our greatest purpose, to glorify God and enjoy him forever through a relationship in Jesus Christ. And so we will focus on the church's basic needs, the basic function, and our basic purpose, and that is that whatever we do, especially as a collective church, as we gather, it will be to God's glory, not Steve's preference, not your agenda or my agenda, but to God be the glory forever and amen. We will focus on that, and we'll let all the details fall into place as they come during those basic tasks. And God will reveal to us what his pleasure is concerning those things. But if we focus on the basic, our needs, the function, and our purpose, all these other things, God will lead us to figure those things out. Those little things that are still important, but we've got to focus on the basic thing. We will be critiqued. We'll be critiqued from those outside of the of the church will be critiqued perhaps those inside the church those outside of God's desire but will also be revealed to us when it happens God will reveal to us how we respond to that critique and how we respond to that critique is hey either come on board or remain where you're at because I can't make someone do something if they don't want to do it right either come on board we'd love to have you or remain where you're at, and we'll leave the results to God. What would this mean to a non-believer, this message? How would it be applied to a non-believer? Well, as a lost person, God has called you to one task as a lost person, and that is that God has called you through the gospel to determine where your eternity is, what your state is. He is calling you through the gospel to understand through that one task that whether or not you know Jesus Christ or you don't will determine your eternity. I had one patient one time. He said, well, I've got my Jesus and you got your Jesus. I said, well, you probably do have your Jesus and I have my Jesus. I said, well, I'm going to tell you what my Jesus says. I said, you can, you can take it, you can, you can reject it. And I just told him what the gospel was. Well, about six months later, he didn't want to have any more of those conversations, but six months later, I'm moving from one hospice to the other. He never mentioned Jesus anymore, but after that six months, I said, hey, you know, it's my last time to visit you. I'm going to be moving on to another hospice that's going full-time because I'm part-time here. I need full-time work, and he said, all right. I said, well, he said, well, preacher, what? He goes, aren't you going to pray for me? I said, yeah, I'll pray for you if you want to because otherwise he'd turn me off for six months. In the midst of that prayer, he says, stop, preacher. I said, what? He goes, uh, you know when I told you about my Jesus and you told me about your Jesus? I said, yeah. He said, I think I like your Jesus a lot better. I said, well, I'm glad you do. And I led him through a prayer. I mean, I'm not saying he was gloriously saved or anything. All I know is he professed Christ right there before I left him. He could be gone to be with the Lord right now. I don't know. But that man realized, as I'm asking all lost people to realize, is that what you have done with Jesus Christ will determine whether you spend eternity with God or eternity without God, separated from God or with God. 
That's the one task God has called lost people to, to consider Jesus, and it demands a response. And that's what that man realized after six months. It demanded a response. Now, his response could have been, you know what about your Jesus and my Jesus? Yes, Mr. Smith, what was that? I like my Jesus better. You know what? I would have been a gentleman. I'm sorry, I'm sorry you do. But just know my Jesus is the truth and way. And I would have walked away and planted a seed. But instead, God stirred that heart for six months. Because for six months, like I said, we didn't talk about anything about religion. What we talked about was John Wayne movies because that's what he liked, John Wayne. I mean, he knew, knew all the actors where they did it. But I kept building that bridge, kept building that bridge, earning his respect, caring about what he cared about. And when I was going to leave, because I was able to plant a seed, he turned to me and said, what must I do? You know, like they're going to do in the book of Acts. They don't even have a sawdust trail. They don't even have an official invitation. What do they do? Excuse me, right in the middle of preaching, what must I do to be saved? That's what they're going to do in the book of Acts, in the birth of the church. They won't have a just as I am. Not that there's anything wrong with that. The Spirit of God will move, and that's what happened to this man. And lost people must realize that what we know about Jesus is not just a bunch of information. It's something that has changed our life. And as a lost person, what they, how they respond to Jesus determines life eternal or death eternal. So I would make an appeal to a lost person. I would let them know that if they would call upon the name of the Lord, they would be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the guilt of sin? Saved from the bondage of sin? Saved from the penalty of sin? That would be my appeal to a lost person. And as I said tonight, as a believer, we're going to build. We're going to build here at Calvary. It's not going to so much be walls. There's some things we're going to have to build. We're going to have to shore up. Part of it may be trust, unity. We're going to have critics. Some people are going to say, what do you think you're doing? You know, it is what it is. You're either on board with God or you can remain where you're at. That's just the way it is. So I'm going to ask Brother Ken to come forward uh, and with the ladies and play a song of invitation. And with this song of invitation, I want to challenge you as a believer. Ask yourself a question. Do I want what God wants or do I want what I want? Because I have to ask myself that every time I stand behind this pulpit. Because otherwise, I could say a lot of things that I feel like I need to say. And I don't say them. You know why? Because I have nothing good to say. That's why before I ever came here, I chose we were going to be in the book of Nehemiah. Not knowing everything that was going to unfold. But I'm telling you, God is speaking tonight. So if you're here tonight, you're a believer. Ask yourself a question. Am I going to follow what God wants? Or am I going to not be a part of that and just remain outside what God is doing, that good work? If you're a non-believer tonight, whether you're listening by internet or you're here tonight, what have you done with Jesus? Because I can tell you what Jesus did for you. He gave all of his life blood and died in spite of us. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us ungodly. The just one died for us unjust. And unless I come to him and say, I am unjust, I deserve to die and, and confess my sins to him so he can place his righteousness upon me, that's the only way of salvation. So if you'll stand for the hymn of invitation number 437. 437.
If you're a believer, ask yourself that question.